Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In today's episode, we're talking about social protection and digital financial inclusion. COVID-19 saw an acceleration in the practice of paying social protection benefits electronically into individual bank or mobile money accounts. According to one global estimate, 80 million women opened accounts for the first time during the pandemic to receive government payments. Digital payments have long been seen as the first step towards improving people's financial inclusion and, by extension, financial health. The idea is that if unbanked people gain access to banking and digital transactions, they may at least have the opportunity to become more financially literate, to save money, contribute to insurance, better manage remittances, and so on. But, as is so often the case, there is a need for careful and intentional design to ensure that digital accounts really do open the door to greater financial inclusion and don't wind up as digital dead ends. With me today, I have Dr. Moisa Serwer, Research Fellow in the Equity and Social Policy Program at ODI Global, and Astrid Duvalon, Digital Financial Inclusion and Women's Economic Empowerment Team Lead at WFP Headquarters. Welcome, Astrid and Moisa. Thank you very much uh, for having me today, and uh, great to be with Moisa there. Great, thanks for having me. Astrid, let me start with you. What do we mean by digital financial inclusion? What kinds of financial products or services are we talking about that we think are useful for people to have, um, and why? Yes, thanks for the question. So um, digital financial inclusion describes the access to formal digital financial products that are affordable, but also the use of this product. So what products are we talking about? Payments, savings, loans, insurance, products that are different according to everybody's needs. It should really increase people's financial health and resilience. So uh, if we take one example, Amina that I met in Uganda, uh, when we describe um, Amina's financial inclusion, she can, for instance, receive payment on her organ account. She can receive the social uh, assistance payment from the government, but she can also receive into her account the money that uh, the clients coming to her little shop uh, pays for the product she sells. She can receive the remittances from her brother abroad, and uh, she saves part of this money on the saving account that she has. And she also makes payment with this account. So she pays the school fees, she can pay the electricity bill with her phone. And um, what is also great is that every month she pay a fee for a health insurance that she took on top of the support that she gets. And she also makes a payment to community, a village saving and loans association. So basically all of these activities are um, enabled by the fact that she is digitally financially included. The access and usage are not the only uh, important points, but also the financial security, the financial control, financial resilience, financial freedom, the digital financial inclusion, which is the access to these financial services such as payments, savings, credit, insurance, together with the financial education and the customer protection, this helps the women and men that we serve better cope with shocks and build their financial resilience and, above all, invest in their future and aspiration. 
Thank you. That was a really nice uh, illustrative example of what that really looks like, that financial health and resilience. To follow up then, you mentioned social assistance payments as one of the ways that people might be uh, receiving money. But can you talk us through just briefly, how are we looking to cash-based transfers to create an entry point to increase that inclusion? So when we deliberately design the cash transfer program to do so, they can really contribute to long-term objectives such as digital financial inclusion. In uh, Somalia, WFP is, for instance, implementing on behalf of the government a social safety net called Max Nano. And this social protection program has also been used to deliver now anticipatory money transfer in advance of the drought early this year. It's funded by the World Bank. And we are transferring money on mobile wallets of 200,000 women. And these women had absolutely no accounts before this program was set up. So they had to uh, get an own SIM card and we accompanied them to do that. Uh, we've carried out a user journey to smoothen the pain points, etc. So that's a great entry point for digital financial inclusion. Moisa, coming to you, you and your co-author Stephanie Dipervine have been looking at digital financial inclusion in the Asia-Pacific region and specifically whether electronic cash-based transfer programs in Bangladesh, Nepal and Cambodia have led to increased financial inclusion. What did you find? So based on our work, we saw that, very much like Astrid is saying, that for some respondents, and typically older women, a social assistance program, whether it's the government or WFP or another humanitarian agency, often leads them to open a bank account for the first time. And as Astrid said, this is a crucial first step for financial inclusion. And we saw this for the Social Security Allowance Program when we spoke to women um, in Nepal. And also we signed the literature for the National Rural Employment Guarantee Program in India. But I think it's widely known in the field, usage and access are two very different things. So people often, and this was our both our respondents as well as literature review in India that showed that people stopped using bank accounts and mobile money accounts once social assistance payments ended. And we also saw this with the program we looked at in Bangladesh. So clearly there is a gap between user and access and a bridge that needs to be built there. There were perhaps both government as a social protection actor and humanitarian agencies, I think, do have the potential to do more. So part of what you were seeing was that many people who were receiving electronic social protection payments into their bank or their mobile money accounts actually did not go on to access other financial services or, or products? So Joanne, I'll start by saying that we realized cash transfers can be electronic in two ways. They can either be electronic at the back end, where governments and organizations like WFP provide cash to financial service providers, such as banks. And they can also be electronic for recipients of cash transfers. So for the target populations we're talking about, the electronic transfer has to be at the recipient end, not the back end, which is much more about facilitating operational ease, efficiency, and transparency for providers. But coming back to the gist of the question, the respondents that we spoke to in Nepal, Cambodia, and Bangladesh typically had a non-digital interface. The electronic cash transfers was often happening in the back end. And other than Bangladesh, people weren't receiving it in electronic means. 
in Bangladesh people did through the Bcash mobile money account, which is linked to a SIM card. So either they had to go to a bank or they had to go to a local money agent to get the cash. And they normally used it for daily household expenditure with vendors in the area or to pay school fees, etc. Our respondents were typically not aware of any formal financial products around savings or credit that they thought or they perceived were relevant to their lives. We asked them if they knew whether banks or mobile money agents or even the apps that they were using in Bangladesh, if there were any linked products um, that offered them savings or insurance or credit in a way that they were interested in them. And people didn't seem to have an awareness around savings or insurance. They did see and notice that banks were credit lending institutions, but spoke about how the requirement for collateral as well as the kind of extensive paperwork was something that made them think of banks as less user-friendly and not fit for their own context. Perhaps if we've been aware of financial products and felt that those financial products were relevant to them, we would have seen a higher uptake of that. So you've explained that people don't always have the choice of saving money, depending on how the transfer is designed. But even where people had the choice between saving or holding funds in an electronic account, they often preferred to cash out. So what explains people's preference for cash? So I think the reason we saw the particular respondents we spoke to, um, you know, quite low-income populations in often sort of peri-urban areas and rural areas, their preferences and tendency to prefer cash out was, I think, linked to the structural environment around financial markets and the local economy in which they operated. So even when we explained to them what digital um, cash could look like and how they could use, for example, just being able to sort of upload balance on their mobile phones using the QR code, etc., they saw it as something that could be convenient, but didn't think that it applied in their context because people in their local areas all operated on cash. They said that their local grocery seller wasn't going to accept a payment digitally. And this also applied when they went to local health clinics and paid their school fees. So they didn't see a large-scale peer use of electronic cash. Linked to that was that people felt that they needed to have an engagement with a service that was able to provide cash in an emergency. Um, because, as I said, we were working in areas where financial institutions weren't widespread, um, people didn't feel that they could go at 1 a.m. to get cash out in an emergency. But they felt that they could do that if they had a local saving group that was done informally, or they could do that when they were um, with their neighbors or their relatives. So I think it's a lot about the fact that formal financial institutions were scarce, for example, such as ATMs, and um, vendors didn't really prefer cash. What did you find in your study about how women, older people, people with disabilities, and some of those other underserved or, or often underbanked groups engage with those digital payments? We observed a gender difference in our sample in how people access cash transfer as well as how they conducted financial transactions generally. So women more than men in our sample and older women more than older men in our sample indicated that they required support. For example, another person who helped them cash out. Now, this other person would often be a bank agent, but sometimes it would be a neighbor. People with disabilities in our sample 
people self-reported reliance on able-bodied household members to receive cash, often to enroll on cash programs and also to cash out transfers and also engage with mobile money agents. The degree of reliance often was um, a function of the severity of the nature of their disability. We, in our primary data collection, didn't really see any adaptations for people with disability in how the cash transfer was delivered. Often it seemed that the burden of the cash transfer was passed on to carers or people in the household and community to sort of ensure that the person with disability got what they were entitled to. Yeah, this comes back to my initial interest in this topic, where we see, you know, on the numbers, there has been a real increase in the number of people who opened bank accounts or equivalent accounts during COVID. But there was a study that came out this year from CGD that surveyed recipients of PMGKY, India's COVID cash transfer, which was paid to 200 million people, looking at whether people with bank accounts had gone on to start making digital payments for other purposes rather than just taking out the cash. And it found, of course, maybe not surprisingly, that there's a lot of variation. Things like smartphone ownership and digital literacy really improve the odds of people adopting digital payments, while being a woman reduces them. In fact, I think the study found that if you were female, illiterate and living in a household with no smartphone, the probability of reporting the use of digital payments is between 1 and 3.9%, so not very high. So opening accounts, obviously, can be a good start, but it doesn't always fully add up to inclusion. I think it was really interesting um, as we were doing this work, how our respondents, our key informant interviews, seem to come from quite different worldviews in some ways. For some, access was inclusion. You know, you can see it defined in a number of organizational measurement indices that access is where sort of inclusion stops or things. I think conversation in this space is sort of moving a lot, which could explain the sort of growth of this other cohort of um, interviewees that we had where people were quite careful and often worried about the fact that access was being conflated with inclusion. While inclusion itself is, as Astrid said, quite linked to financial health, it's not just about having something, but it's about the ability to use that account, use that access to better economic conditions for oneself, one's household, to be better able to cope with shock, to be able to build some kind of assets and savings that then, again, serve as a cushion in and provide some sort of resilience. Another component of financial inclusion that I think is interesting for us to sort of keep in mind about is there was a raft of observers which we spoke to seem to believe that digitalization, the wave of sort of digital finance was almost inevitable. It was something that was being picked up. And I think that might be true for perhaps the majority of um, the higher income population in any country. But as we saw in our study, people at the lower end, at the low income um, or lower income quintile weren't necessarily or inevitably part of this. So I'm not sure this is going to happen automatic for them. I think for me, the study really made me think about whether, you know, there is such a thing as trickle down digitalization. And I don't think there is that there are people 
for whom that infrastructure barrier is real, for whom the trust barrier in formal financial institutions is real, and that needs to be addressed. And it's not going to happen inevitably, and it's not going to happen just by giving them access to a cash account or a digital app. Astrid, you started to talk about design factors and how design was very important. If we want to really intentionally design social protection or humanitarian cash payments to actively contribute to financial inclusion, and especially for women and other underbanked groups, how do we need to think about designing those programs? Yes, thank you very much. So when we look at women's journey to digital financial inclusion, basically they have six main obstacles or boulders that they need to climb until they can really be part of the digital financial inclusion ecosystem. And the first one is having cash inflow. So if a woman can rely on a regular cash inflow, be it from the government, WFP, but most of it own income, her friends, the family, that's already a very important part. The second one is having an ID, an officially recognized ID to open an account in her own name. And that's also very important because that's one of the barriers we see in many of the contexts we are operating where a woman, for instance, wouldn't have the appropriate identity papers to open this type of account. Then the third boulder is related to capabilities. Women and men need to know how to use the digital financial services and feel confident to use them. And that's exactly what Moisa was talking about before. People would be interested to actually not cash everything out, but they they feel it's much more convenient currently because they don't know about the existing product. They don't know what it will help them for. And if nobody really helped them and accompanied them on building these capabilities, then they might still continue to put the cash under their mattress with all the risks that it implies. And the fourth boulder is related to customer protection. Women and men need to know they are listened to and they have rights and they can voice their grievance. And it will not affect the amount of money they're entitled to receive. The fifth border is related to the availability of digital financial services. Many financial operators, when they design products, they design for the majority. They don't look at specific needs that, for instance, women could have or people with disabilities or older people could have, and they could become very profitable clients for them. And the last one is related to having a digital ecosystem, an economy that works digitally, where, as Moisa was saying, can the woman who received the money from the government pay digitally at the local shop? Can they receive additional remittances or not? So in the work that WFP is doing, there are two key principles we really want to push. We really want to ensure we direct the cash transfer program into women's digital account. And we push more money into women's account, even if they are not the head of household or the primary recipient by default. So we really need to do more to help these excluded and invisible women make their voices heard and become financially resilient to the different shocks and raise to their potential. And we also really want to push is to provide choice because uh, currently, what is happening is that WFP or government, they contract one or two financial service provider. So um, 
women and men would be told, okay, we will open an account for you with this bank or with this mobile money operator. And that might be one reason why they cash out, because maybe for them, that's not the one they trust or they would have selected themselves. So when women can choose where, when, and how they want to receive the assistance, when they choose it based on their access, the privacy, the friendly service, uh, if they have a cost and the user interface that they understand, the gains are really amplified. I think there are two things that matter. Um, the frequency of payment seems to make a difference. So if payments are one-off, people then just end up using the mobile money account or the bank account to withdraw cash. But where payments are more frequent, so now we're thinking about monthly social assistance or moving beyond that into the labor market, monthly wages, then familiarity with the product goes up. In our literature review, we saw this in Bangladesh for recipients of the Employment Generation Program for the Poorest, where the program deposited monthly salaries into the account. And the program also had a compulsory saving component per month, which meant a small proportion of each month's payment couldn't be withdrawn until the first day of the next financial year. So it's what we would consider a labor market intervention and not particularly social assistance in some ways. And this brings me to the second point that matters, which is that in social assistance, it's often also the amount of cash transfer that matters. So not just the frequency, but the amount. In social assistance, amounts are often very low and quite infrequent. So people are unlikely going to be experimenting with it. Astrid, stepping back, social assistance payments aren't the only source of income or financing for poor and underserved populations. Social assistance is just one entry point. What are some of the other ways that people are thinking about using digital approaches to improve financial inclusion? That's adjacent, perhaps, to the social protection space. Yes, having a secure, regular cash inflow, and as Moisa said, so some cash inflow that is consequent enough uh, to be able to make plans and sell this financial health I was mentioning before is a definite essential. It's really the first boulder that uh, we are mentioning when we describe uh, what the digital financial inclusion is about. I just want here to highlight the importance of uh, remittances. To put things in perspective, uh, remittances in 2022 will reach uh, $630 billion. It's massive uh, compared to any humanitarian cash assistance. And that's where we are working with remittances company to encourage the digitization of their services. If remittances are sent and received, for instance, on a digital account instead of being cashed out, then it would definitely help so many people be on the path of digital financial inclusion because they might receive these remittances a bit more regularly. They might receive amounts that are a bit more consequence. So we are definitely discussing uh, with uh, remittances companies to really try to have to encourage this digitalization and this transfer to formal financial accounts and also, of course, a reduction of their fees. The other aspect is related to wage payment. In Jordan, WFP is supporting 500,000 people as part of the Syrian crisis response. Under our resilience program, uh, we provide a cash for work initiative to support livelihoods of vulnerable segments of Jordan and refugee populations. So women and men since 2022 started receiving their wage through the mobile money. And that's where we met Riham, and she was explaining that she received a salary 
through the mobile account. And she was explaining what she was doing from a, with the salary. So she was not cashing everything out. She said, yes, with an e-wallet, it's easy to cash out, but it's also easy to save money and also to transfer it to my mother without paying fees. And I really appreciate to pay my bills and university fees while I'm sitting at home. So this is really the way that Reham uh, has used the money that she was receiving on the mobile money account of her choice to not only cash out, but also use additional financial product. The last point I wanted to say was related to a digitalization of village saving and loans associations, saving groups, etc. We are spotting, for instance, in Uganda, the digitalization of the saving groups so that uh, women and men who are part of the saving group get a digital financial history. So this history might help them then contract with another bank, another financial service, individual loans for their own projects. And it can also lead to provision of other services. For instance, the group can get micro insurance to strengthen the local resilience or they can also be connected to other saving groups so that they pull their resources together and get access to additional formal financial products. So there is a lot of positive aspects to digitalization of this village saving and loans association. Moise, just before you gave an example of an active labour market program that was helping to encourage savings, and it's just a real reminder that there are a lot of ways into this topic. I saw an interesting case in Bangladesh during COVID where if employers, for example, in garment factories wanted to access COVID wage subsidies provided by government, they had to open bank accounts for employees through which to receive wages on an ongoing basis. To your earlier point, wages are generally paid more frequently and are of higher value than basic social assistance payments and you know, there is some evidence to show that the payment of wages into bank accounts can be associated with developing greater financial literacy, better management of savings and debt, and so on, some of these outcomes that we're ultimately aiming for. So are there any other ways that social protection policies and programs can kind of support a broader agenda for financial inclusion beyond just providing those basic payments into bank accounts? I think one of the ways that I can think about it, and it sort of touches on something Astrid said earlier around the diversity of products, is for humanitarian agencies and government social protection actors who are interested in exploring financial inclusion through um, cash transfers, perhaps being more aware of and or conducting a mapping study of what financial products already exist that have been shown to be beneficial for low-income populations in managing shocks and also sort of encourage lending in non-predatory ways. So products that already exist and trying to see if any of them are linked to or are available with the FSPs that humanitarian agencies are using. So Looking at what's out there in the market and kind of incorporating that in the trainings that are delivered about how to use cash as a sort of add-on training around what exists and information about products that people might be encouraged to use. So I think there are some linkages that can be made around the broader financial inclusion space and work that is happening perhaps in SMEs and microfinance banks, but you know, 
regularized formal microfinance banks and people's knowledge and awareness around them. Thank you, Moisa and Astrid, for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us today uh, and thank you for the discussion. Thanks for having us, Joe. Before we go, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask our guests to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today we have two guests for Quick Wins, Dominic Lescasse and Anita Mittel from GIZ. Dominic is an advisor and Anita is senior advisor leading the Digital Convergence Initiative. Welcome, Anita and Dominic. Hello, nice to be here. Hi, thank you for being here. So you both work with the Digital Convergence Initiative, Universal Social Protection or USP 2030. Um, and that initiative is about creating integrated and interoperable social protection information systems. Anita, to start with you, can you tell us a little bit about why building these kinds of systems is important for achieving universal social protection and expanding that coverage? So information systems are actually indispensable for delivery of social protection. This has been exemplified in various studies and especially during the COVID pandemic times, in the social protection systems were tested, or I would rather say stress tested, it showed the preparedness of countries to deliver social protection. And one of the lessons we have seen in the analysis done for over thousands of programs that provided cash transfer during the pandemic was the need for integrated and interoperable social protection system. The social protection program delivery systems are complex. It involves interactions of multiple interconnected components. And if these systems don't talk to each other, there would be chaos, leakages. So what we need these systems to be able to talk to each other, exchange data meaningfully. For this exchange to happen, you need standards. So the Digital Convergence Initiative's vision is to develop consensus-based global standards, which could be used to make these social protection systems interoperable. You pick up a system from one vendor and try to make it work with the system from another vendor, and they will work seamlessly because they both follow the same standard. And this allows the country to reduce time and cost of implementing these complex information systems. Thank you. That's a good introduction into the Convergence Initiative and we'll provide some links to that people can go and find it. The initiative has just released a new paper setting out nine principles for digital development and how they should apply to social protection systems. Dominic, we don't have time to go through all of them here, so listeners will have to seek out the report. But to give us a flavour, why are these important principles to keep in mind? Yeah, so the Digital Convergence Initiative explored existing guidance and principles for building inclusive, sustainable and robust um, digital social protection systems. 
And we believe that the nine principles for digital development are appropriate to adopt for the social protection sector as they are already endorsed by many development organizations and solution providers like UNICEF, GIZ, ILO, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This document offers specific guidance on the application of the principles for digital development to social protection. And we try to show how each principle applies to the social protection sector. First, the original definition is presented for each principle, like design with the user, design for scale, bid for sustainability, or reuse and improve. Then the social protection perspective and the key actions to apply it in practice will follow. And we show the barriers by implementation, way to overcome these barriers, the country level examples of good and bad practices, as well as additional resources are provided. We have identified the following additional points. Start with policy, be clear about what needs to change and why, define ownership and accountability, manage change effectively. And it is important to take these factors into account to ensure the ultimate success of digitalization in the social protection sector. We hope to help many people to design their systems for the future in a sustainable way with these guides. Thank you. We'll also link to a series of talking interoperability webinars presented as part of the Digital Convergence Initiative. These include eight deep dives on specific country experiences developing these interoperable systems, um, including Turkey and Chile, which are two examples that I often see. There is also an interoperability in action workshop series um, that have had two sessions so far, one on the interoperability of social protection systems with civil registration and vital statistics data, and the other aligning very much with the theme of our main interview this episode on payment systems. Thank you, Anita and Dominic, for making the time to join us on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.